This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the 2022 Medicare for All Strategy Conference. Uh, this is our very first session, and I'm really excited to have an amazing guest, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Welcome to the conference. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. Really excited to be here with you. Just to briefly let folks know who you are, if they don't already, Dr. Al-Sayed is a physician and an epidemiologist. You served as the health director in the city of Detroit, but you're currently a policymaker in residence at the University of Michigan Ford School of Public Policy. A lot of people know you because back in 2018, you ran for the governor of Michigan on a Medicare for All platform. I mean, just last year, you literally wrote the book on Medicare for All. I've got it right here. It's a fantastic read. It's called Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide, which you co-authored with Dr. Micah Johnson, who's based here in Boston, I think, where I live. And it covers, you know, not just the policy of Medicare for All, but also the politics of like getting there and how we win this thing. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, how did you end up in this path in life? How did you end up kind of dedicating your life to the health of others and, and to healthcare in particular? Well, for folks who don't know, my, my background ethnically is Egyptian American and I was raised by my father, who was an immigrant from Alexandria, Egypt, and my stepmom, Jackie, who's a daughter of the American Revolution from St. Louis, Michigan, so right here <laughs> in the state. And I had this sort of split screen experience growing up where, you know, I'd leave my comfy suburban home just north of Detroit to head to Alexandria, where I'd hang out with my family, very working class background. My grandmother, with whom I spent most of my time, never got to learn how to read. She never went to school. She was illiterate. She raised six kids of eight to whom she gave birth. Two died before the age of one. And I thought a lot about all of the forces that shaped this incredible woman's life, uh, whether it's racism or colonialism or structural poverty or autocracy in Egypt. And that got me really thinking about the opportunities that I had. Now, I didn't have the language to articulate this, but when I travel to and from Egypt, I'd go about 15 hours and I'd cross about 10 years difference in life expectancy. Here's the crazy part of it, though. I didn't have to go 15 hours to Egypt. I could go 15 minutes to the city of Detroit from where I grew up. And I had crossed the same 10-year life expectancy gap. And I wanted my work to be about that. And I trained in medicine thinking that ultimately, as a doctor, I could take care of patients on the wrong side of those chasms, only in my training to come to appreciate that, frankly, our healthcare system is so much a part of the problem. It creates and, and sustains so much of those differentials in where we provide healthcare, who gets access to affordable, equitable quality insurance. And I wanted to be a part of fixing that problem. And mm -hmm. so most of my career has been focused on public health, but I've come to appreciate that the end outcome of our public health system is our healthcare system. And the fact that we allow our system to cost us a upwards of 20% of our entire GDP to deliver mediocre outcomes on average and some of the most inequitable outcomes in the world is itself part of the public health challenges. We saw that front and center when it came to COVID-19. We saw 15% of people lose their health insurance in the, in the first wave of the pandemic. We watched as our healthcare systems got inundated. And despite that, 47 hospitals closed during the pandemic when you'd think you'd want all of your hospital capacity up front and center. But that's because of 
the way that we've basically allowed our system to be wound around the axle of profits for major corporations rather than built upon the goal of providing healthcare for everyone. And so this is what led me to healthcare activism and, and why I'm so passionate, both you know in my political advocacy and in, in my research and writing on Medicare for All. I think you did some of your schooling in England, actually. So you've probably had a little bit of a glimpse of a real universal healthcare system or socialized medicine, you know? <laughs> you know, the crazy thing is even in Egypt, where I'd spend my summers, everybody had access to some form of healthcare. It wasn't great. You're talking about a middle income country, mm -hmm. but no matter who you were, there was still a place you could go. I mean, in, in the United States, beyond an emergency room, that's not necessarily true for you. The richest, most powerful country in the world. In the UK, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was a medical student when I went to the UK. I, I did my, my PhD in public health there. And I played football in high school and decided I wanted to try the British analog of football, which is rugby. Very my different. first play, very no different, helmets. right? No <laughs> helmets, no pads. My first play, I'd asked the rugby captain how to tackle. And he said, well, it's just like football. Well, in football, you're, you're taught to pop the guy, right? And it's a lot more about the impact than taking him down to the ground. And I did that. And, you know, the, the other gentleman, unfortunately, ended up with a concussion. And I got up and could feel every time I breathed this pain in my rib. And I knew that I'd probably had a non-displaced fracture. And just to be safe, right, given my American tendencies, I, I went to the, the GP in, in the UK. And I told him, I was like, here's my symptoms. I can't laugh. And he just looks at me dryly and <laughs> says, then don't laugh. I'm like, well, no, I, you know, I'd really like to be able to laugh. That's a diagnosis for you. <laughs> yeah, right. And I asked him, I was like, well, do you want to do anything? He said, you're in med school, right? I said, yes. He said, well, what do you think this is? I was like, it's probably a non-displaced fracture. He's like, how do you know it's non-displaced? Well, if displaced, your ribs come literally get displaced from each other. And so you end up having mm -hmm. jagged, broken rib that can cut into the sack that covers your your lungs and, and that's a medical emergency because if that breaks then you end up losing the negative pressure that allows you to breathe in the first place so that's a real problem obviously i could breathe i was i walked into the office on my own accord and he said okay well you already know the diagnosis what more do you want me to do i said well you don't want to get an x-ray or like a ct and he said he said let me tell you something in the u.s I'd give you an x-ray. I'd give you a CT because I'd make money off of it. But here, I make no extra money. All you're going to do is steal some x-ray or CT from some poor right. bloke who needs it. Right. So why would I do that for you? And I was like, <laughs> you know, that's a very fair point. So in the end, you know, people hear the story and they say, well, see, that's an example of why a truly universal healthcare system rations care that you mm -hmm. might need. I said, well, actually, no, both me, poorly trained doctor and him, a fully trained doctor, agreed that I didn't actually need this service. Mm -hmm. So it was a waste of money to have provided it. The only reason I would have gotten that service in the United States is because people make money on providing me, who is privileged enough to be insured, that service. And so it's a perfect example of the kind of waste that happens every single day. Meanwhile, folks who don't have that training think that they're getting great care because they're getting a service but they don't understand that they're actually cost of that service. Every time you get a CT, even an x-ray, you're exposing your body to unnecessary radiation and that has a cost. And so it exemplar for me of what we're after. And the other funny point I just want to make on this is that in the UK, they actually have a government healthcare system. Medicare for all is not actually government health care. It's government health insurance. Right. And that's a really big difference. And so when folks say, well, you, you advocate for a government takeover of healthcare. No. I advocate for a government takeover of health insurance because health insurance offers no value in the American healthcare system. All it does is intermediate a middleman who then profiteers off of our 
illness. And I just think that's immoral. It's profoundly inefficient and it's inequitable. Well, that's a, a great transition to qu some questions from some of the folks who are going to be attending the conference to, who had for you. Um, we had one question from Rebecca in Illinois about Medicare. And we sometimes forget we do have a, a public universal-ish healthcare system once you turn 65 in the United States. Rebecca says, too many times since the privatization of Medicare, whenever I use the term Medicare for all, the reaction to that is all too often Medicare sucks. Uh, so then we start down the rabbit hole of, well, we don't really mean Medicare like it is. So Rebecca is wondering about our use of the term Medicare for all and also Medicare as a model for what we're fighting for. Well, I've always found that actually people who are on Medicare don't think Medicare sucks. And that's because they go through this experience by turning 65, where all of a sudden they go from an insurance product that doesn't accomplish its main goal. I mean, once you think about the etymology of the word insurance, the, the operative word is sure, meaning you are sure it's going to be there for you. And the truth of the matter is in our insurance system, because of deductibles and co-pays, there's nothing to be sure about. Whereas with Medicare, you're sure that it's going to be there for you, right? You may have a copay, you may have a deductible depending on how much you make, but it's going to be there for you. It's not going away. And so most folks who are on Medicare like Medicare, oftentimes there's a stereotype of, oh, Medicare is terrible. But actually, when you talk to the folks who use Medicare day to day, they like it. And some folks will say, you know, it's, it's not great. In which case I would ask, all right, what's the socioeconomic position of the person that you're talking to, right? Did they go through that experience of not having health insurance or having such crap health insurance to having Medicare? The other point I'll make on this is that's true. You know, we're not talking about Medicare as it is. Medicare has been deliberately choked off and deliberately privatized so that it is not as high a quality product as it possibly could be. That's the whole point. That's the kind of lobbying that the health insurance industry, which by the way, is the second biggest lobbyist by dollar in the entire system. They've been lobbying to keep Medicare mediocre so that they can then lobby for these advantage products that allow them to in effect, to cherry pick off the top by offering what Medicare doesn't offer because they're keeping Medicare from offering it. And so uh, the point that I often make to folks is if Medicare is not what it, it should be, ask yourself why, right? Why is Medicare not what should it be? Well, it's because the insurance industry understands the comparison and is trying to keep the comparison as beneficial for the industry as it possibly can be. And that means choking off Medicare using this line of reasoning saying that we can't afford it. But that's that zero sum logic that we keep hearing all the time. When actually what we can't afford is an insurance system that forces us to be employed or under 26 or whatever, or married or whatever else it is to get insurance and then have to pay a deductible. I mean, I, I teach a course on universal health coverage, which is you know mainly Medicare for all uh, at American University. And every time I try and explain deductibles to students, they're mm -hmm. flabbergasted. They can't compute that this is a thing. They're like, wait, so... So you have to pay again for the thing you already paid for? I'm like, yep. mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I did just, I want you to think for a second about Aflac, right? Aflac is insurance coverage for your insurance coverage. Right. right? Like, what's the whole point of Aflac? When your insurance needs insurance, it's not insurance. Anyway, so the point here is to say that, yes, we do need to fill the holes in Medicare, but often ask folks why it is that Medicare is not what it could or should be. I often hear this conversation also, this argument from physicians. They say, well, if I was reimbursed at the Medicare rate, I wouldn't be able to keep my practice. Right. Open. Yeah. And it just, it betrays a certain lack of imagination to think that Medicare after Medicare for all would be exactly the same thing right. as Medicare today. <laughs> yeah. The other point here is, is one of political tactic and organizing. I actually think that in some respects, the Medicare for all label may, may be something that we need to think a bit about, right? Because I, I do think that any label, any short of short term label that you put on a policy, it is intended to be almost a catch-all for a certain level of political organizing. And I think the ways that enemies of Medicare for All have been able to 
twist the conversation about Medicare for all may have at this point outweighed what it is that we can do around using it as an organizing umbrella. Obviously, you know, when, when Mike and I wrote the book, we wrote it on Medicare for all because it's what people understand. Mm-hmm. But really what we're trying to build is a universal national health insurance program. Like that's what we're trying to build. And so I do think that there is potentially a conversation that we as folks and you all attending this conference ought to be thinking about how do we potentially diversify the conversation holder, right? The name for what we're trying to build. Because the truth is that the name Medicare for all is pretty new. But the idea of building a universal national health insurance program, that goes all the way back to Roosevelt, Teddy, Mm -hmm. uh, the first Roosevelt. So there's a long history of building upon this. And so there is, I think, there needs to be an active conversation about what the umbrella we're organizing under ought to be moving forward. Yeah, we just, you know, with the attempt to pass Build Back Better, we almost got the addition of, you know, dental vision and hearing in Medicare, but if we start talking about that, two grown men are going to cry on this this interview. So let's not talk about Build Back Better. So I wanted to switch to a really deep question from an activist in Virginia, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he was wondering how the legacy of slavery in the United States has impacted or kind of shaped our current for-profit healthcare system. Oh, profoundly. My friend Heather McGee wrote a fantastic book called The Sum of Us. And in that book, she talks about how racism continues to flummox our capacity as a society to invest in collective public goods because the zero-sum nature of advocating against access to certain goods for Black people and to some extent brown people is more powerful almost than the self-interest of lower-income white folks, particularly in legacy Confederacy states. And you look at that with Medicaid expansion, right, which was a pretty profound social experiment to that end. You think about the 13 states that still have yet to expand Medicaid, which would mean literally an influx of federal dollars into those states to provide health care for everyone who met a particular income threshold, which includes both black and brown folks, but also low-income white folks. And those states still have not done that. And it implies, it tells the story of the way that racism interferes with our capacity to invest in global collective public goods. And, you know, you think about the end use cases that you will hear about Medicare for all, if and when, God willing, it is passed, inshallah, as we say in my tradition, they will bring out, right, what what will happen is they will talk about Medicare as being a government handout for certain quote-unquote types of people. They will use and bring back that Reagan-esque trope of the welfare queen. They'll talk about it as being unearned. They'll use examples of people who are undocumented immigrants to this country, and they'll say, well, you know, your healthcare monies are going to pay for those undocumented folks, which will be a deliberate racist attack. And so, you know, yes, it plays a major role. And even today, right, I, I just want you to think about the way we value a body, right? Because in this country, we have a privatized, partitioned health insurance system. The value of providing care, the reimbursement of providing care to different people's bodies differs based on how much money they make. And how much money they make because of structural racism differs based on the color of their skin. And so about 67% of of Black children in America are insured either through S-CHIP or Medicaid, compared to about 35% of white children. And when you do the math, the fact that Medicaid reimburses at about half the rate as Medicare, when you do the math, it implies that we basically value in this country 
the body of a black child at about 85% the rate on average as the body of a, of a white child. I want you to think about that, right? Because what is healthcare except for caring for someone's body? And the differentiator here, right, maps directly to all of the structural racism that started with the transatlantic slave trade on through Jim Crow, on through structural racism today. And so there is no way to divorce structural racism from the nature of our healthcare system, our failure to provide health insurance for every single American and the way that that conversation is still live and powerful in the minds of racist logic and those who pervade racist logic into our public discourse today. Yeah. And one question I had for you is, uh, how do you talk about, I mean, Medicare for all, structural racism with people who are family and friends who are maybe not in the movement or maybe not in the left, I, I would say, not activists don't speak the same necessarily jargon as, as activists, uh, progressives do. What's your approach? And I, I guess... Bedside physicians have to do this all the time, but. <laughs> ben, I really appreciate the question because I actually think one of the challenges that we have on the left and in progressive circles is that we're really good at having conversations with one another. And we're not that great at having conversations with folks who don't necessarily see the world the way we do. And we often assume that that is because they disagree morally with us and that the way that we need to bring them over to our side is shake our fingers and wag our fingers about the immorality of their position. That doesn't work. That's not a good organizing strategy. Oftentimes people are just not as dialed in simply either because they don't have the time or because they've got other things that they've got to focus on or because they haven't had conversations with folks like you to, to bring, bring them in. And I think the best way to engage with people is to start asking questions. Tell me about your health insurance situation. Tell me about the last time you got sick. What was the conversation that you had with your insurer? What doctors could you see and not see? What were you worried about right after you got out of the hospital or when that bill arrived and you knew and you saw the name of your health insurer there and you were so scared to open it? How many days did you set it aside before you finally opened it to see what the damage was going to be? Tell me about people in your family and their situation. How many people do you know who don't have health insurance? How many people do you know who haven't gone to the doctor because uh, they're worried about what it might cost them? Tell me about how many times you've had to stack your health care at the end of the year because you're worried that your deductible is going to re-up in January, right? What is that like for you? And once you start getting people to talk that through, then the question is, well, why do you think that's happening? And who benefits from that happening? And what is it, how do they keep getting away with it? Once you start asking those questions, you put people in a position where the issue goes away, leaves the abstract and starts to become one that is deeply personalized in their own minds, where they are now the central actor in the broader system of our healthcare. They can situate themselves and others like them whom they know, and they can tell the story of our healthcare system for themselves in ways that are far bigger and more nuanced than the story you could tell. And so pulling this conversation out of the abstract and putting it back into the direct lived experience of people is extremely powerful. The other point here is that I think sometimes we are really interested in debating. And I just don't think debating is as valuable as empowering and helping folks, giving them information and context mm -hmm. and keeping a smile on your face and saying, hey, you know, I might not win you today, but, but I, I want to keep having this conversation. Because I hope that someday you'll see it the way that I do. And if not, right, you know, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep talking in a spirit of, of respect and civility. The other point here is to remember that at the end of the day, people care more about how you make them feel than they care about, you know, whether or not you agree or disagree. People sometimes will actually cognitively agree with you, but emotionally disagree with you. Usually when you have a conversation, 
winning someone over doesn't look like proving them wrong because once you prove them wrong, they have a, a vested stake in not showing you <laughs> that they've been proved wrong. Yeah. So they will continue, even though intellectually they will submit to the debate, they'll just be like, I don't like you and I don't want to mm -hmm. be like you. So right. actually, no, right. I, I disagree. And you're like, well, what do you disagree on? Mm -hmm. I just proved to you. And they're like, yeah, well, mm -hmm. that's exactly it. You proved to me, right. Rather than empowering me to see the truth for myself. And so I, I would just say that like, it's worth avoiding debate. It's worth avoiding abstract conversations and moralizing. It's worth trying to avoid the nuances to get folks to engage with the broader concrete issues. And then over time, right, create a funnel for them. Be like, all right, well, you see it this way. How about you come in and engage with this group of people who are going to have a conversation today? How about you check out this piece that I read that I thought you might be interested in, or here's a book to learn about this issue. And then pull them in and bring them in. It's not enough to just win folks over. You've got to take them from being someone who sees the world as it is to someone who's willing to do the work of changing the world to be what it ought to be. And that takes patience, that takes time. And sometimes it moves a lot slower than, than you think it might. I, I love that answer. It, you basically just described what good organizing looks like, I think. <laughs> and maybe related to that is this question from James in Illinois, who asks, you know, I think a lot of people ask this when they're weighing, you know, should I get involved with the Medicare for All movement? Is it worth my time? He asks, how can we overcome the power of big business, big medicine, big pharma, special interests with big money, and so on? It can feel, I think, really overwhelming for folks who want to change the system, but are like, is this just a totally useless effort? Well, James, the, the only way is organizing. We have a whole chapter in the book called Organizing versus Advertising. They will continue to swing big money at this problem because that's all they have. And the truth of the matter is their greed is putting people on our side. Every single day, every time they raise their deductibles, every time somebody has to debate with some faceless insurance person on the other side of a line after they've gotten sick about whether or not the insurance is actually going to pay for the health care that they already paid for, every single time that happens, you've got someone who is on the side of Medicare for all. They may not know it yet. They may not have a, the language for it. Mm -hmm. But our job is to be able to give them that language and to create a space where they can go to be a part of a solution. And because the structure of our healthcare system is deteriorating, because people have come through this experience where they've either lost their health insurance or they've had to look across a table at a nurse who's overworked because their healthcare system is nickel and diming them, people are, are seeing the light that the system is broken. Now, our job is to show them what the solution to fixing the system ought to be. And so organizing really, frankly, honestly, is the only way forward. I wish I could tell you how we could defeat big business. Trust me, I have seen the consequences of what they can do in our politics firsthand in ways that I, you know, I wish I, I didn't have to actually know. But if we give up, if we give in, that just means that there are millions of people either at best getting nickel and dimed by a system that they shouldn't have to give their hard-earned money to, and at worst are going without the healthcare that they need. And so I think that the only moral approach here is to step up. Now, when I engage with people in public policy spheres or in media or in politics, they're like, it's a pipe dream. Why don't you just get with the system? There's a lot of incremental change that we can go after. Mm -hmm. And I guess to me, the answer is all of that incremental change assents to their dominance of the system. You're basically saying that the greed of large corporations is the primal issue here. And all we can do is readjust the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. And I'm just not willing to do that. I told you where I come to this from. And it's a recognition of the kind of pain on the wrong side of not having healthcare. Too many people go through that. And I think we have a responsibility to fix it. And so that takes us locking arms together because as individuals, they might 
pick us off, but as, as a collective, right? That's how we push back. And trust me, the, the facts are with us. And I think if we're with the facts, then in the end, we're with the future. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just close with one final, also kind of organizing question. I mean, you talked about how kind of the inequities in the healthcare system were one of the things that really called you to this movement and to this work in your life. How do we avoid kind of reproducing some of the inequities in our healthcare system in our movement organizing, which we all know, you know, on the left is not unheard of. So, Yeah, they care about money and power. And we have to care about people and truth. And that means literally organizing from, from the bottom up. It means putting voices forward whose experiences with this system are resounding. And so I, I just think that we really need to be smart about really empowering folks. The other point to remember here is not all organizers are going to be able to show up to every meeting. I'm, you know, A lot of the folks who suffer this system the worst are working two, three jobs. They can't necessarily make time to come and be a part of this. So how do we think about their user experience of our movement and adjust what we do so that the time that they have and the effort that they can make, they can they can make. And I think in that respect, we've got to sort of rethink this idea that everything's going to fit within the traditional nine to five frame that you can go to a meeting at seven o'clock and that everybody can make it. That's just not the case. And so how are we taking our message out to folks and empowering them to be a part of it when the circumstances of their lives, the reasons that they suffer our healthcare system so profoundly also preclude them from being able to be a part of sort of traditional organizing. And mm-hmm. I think if we think with that place in mind, we recognize that their stories are the most powerful thing that we have as an organizing tool and that we have to put those folks front and center to be able to share their stories and and build movement. I think that's how we succeed. Well, thank you so much. That was really powerful message. I, I like that we spent half of this talking about organizing and not about policy, maybe more, because that's really what it's going to take to win this. So thank you all so much. And I'm looking forward really to the rest of this Medicare for All conference. Take care. Well, Ben, I- I thank you for being an organizing leader. All of you all, thank you for being a part of this. And I'm grateful to be part of this work with you. Absolutely. 